Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 90, How Scott Turo Writes. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode with an author who has sold tens of millions of books. Sometimes I try and rationalize that, I try to think about how many books that actually is, and it just kind of blows my mind. Anyways, Scott Turo is an author and a lawyer. In this discussion, Scott and I dive into the guts of storytelling. More than just about any other interview I've done, this one with Scott is special because we really tackle these big ideas, really meaty ideas in the storytelling life. It is at once philosophical and hopefully practical. It's just the mix I love. Scott is so thoughtful in his responses, and each time I've listened to this interview, I've pulled out something new. I want to take a quick second to thank Scott for his time and for sharing so much with me. I know you're going to love this one. And now, my friends, without any further ado, here is the interview with Scott Turrell. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today's special guest is Scott Turo. Scott is the author of many best-selling works of fiction, including The Last Trial, Testimony, Identical Innocent, Presumed Innocent, and The Burden of Proof, as well as two nonfiction books, including 1L, about his experiences as a law student. His books have been translated into more than 40 languages, sold more than 30 million copies worldwide, and have been adapted into movies and television projects. He has frequently contributed essays and op-ed pieces to publications such as the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. Scott is also, so on top of all these things, Scott is also an accomplished attorney, having argued and won many high-profile cases, including a pro bono, pro bono case, which was the reversal of a murder conviction of a man who had spent 11 years in prison. Scott lives outside of the Windy City, Chicago. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. So, I, yeah, we, we were just talking before um, we started recording about your life as an attorney. And one phenomenon I've, I've noticed, so I've you know done a, a lot of these interviews at this point. One phenomenon I've noticed is that lawyers make fantastic fiction writers. A lot of lawyers find their way into fiction. And I'm curious if you have any ideas why it seems like those two things are so well connected. Well, um, I've obviously thought about this a little bit. And the, the short answer is that, you know, the law is all about words. Um, you know, we think about, you know, the institutions of the laws, like the, you know, the courtroom or the sheriff throwing somebody's furniture out onto the lawn during the course of an eviction. And see all this drama. What a lawyer is doing, um, whether they're speaking in court or drafting a document is dealing with words. Uh, the law, hmm. uh, or all its supposed majesty is 
nothing but words. Hmm. And so you're talking about an intensely verbal, uh, maybe the most verbal profession. And uh, so, you know, people who like words, like reading, uh, they generally speaking, don't mind writing. Uh, and then you get to the thing that sort of fascinated me when I um, left law school and started trying cases, uh, which is that um, the trial of a lawsuit involves telling a story to a popular audience, which is pretty much what I think of as my job as an author. Hmm. So you, um, you get some training in the courtroom in doing the same things that uh, a novelist is, is trying to do. So, you know, for all those reasons, I think things kind of um, fall together. And there are a lot of lawyers who, who write, a lot of lawyers who read. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, of course, they're, um, I, I am often credited with having, um, you know, filled some lawyers' lives with illusions because, uh, just because you're a lawyer doesn't mean that you can be a novelist. <laughs> right. And that's, it's such an interesting way to put it. I've never thought about that. And so I'm happy, I'm happy to kind of bring this out into the open, which is this idea that, you know, in law, you're trying to make a case and, and be convincing using words. And, and in fiction, we are kind of doing the same thing, trying to paint a picture and all you have is these words on a page. Yeah, absolutely. And, super uh, interesting. You know, it, um, one of the things is, I, I, I think that all writers of fiction are gripped by the reality of the world that they're trying to create. But, um, and so they're, they're not trying to pull a fast one over on anybody. But, um, you know, it, it, in reality, we're still illusionists, right? Mm. We're, we're, we're trying to create a believable world. Um, and we hope it has some, some uh, significant resemblance to reality. But um, it is an illusion. Mm. You know? mm. I love, I, yeah, you, you've kind of got my mind you've kind of got my mind spinning a little bit. I, I, there, there's something in there that's just so interesting about, um, about the parallel there. Like there, there's just something, there, there's just something so interesting. Do you, do you think, do you think as, as you've studied law, um, there's also a degree of studying people, right. To, to, to try cases is to understand human motivation and human intention, which is also, obviously super critical <laughs> to writing good fiction. Right. You can't separate people from fiction. I don't think you can. Um, is there, yeah. is there a degree of that as well? Just kind of like, like seeing, seeing the underbelly even, right. Especially in criminal law, seeing the yeah. underbelly of, of yeah. humanity. Well, there's, I mean, I don't know any good. Um, I don't know any good trial lawyers who are not also very good at reading people. Hmm. Uh, and every, every criminal defense lawyer who is any good at what she or he is doing will tell you that, you know, they're part psychiatrist mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, they have to deal with 
their client at a psychological level in several different ways, both to deal with their anxiety about confronting, um, you know, being apprehended and punished, um, understanding why in the world they did what they did, uh, if they did it at all. Uh, and, you know, and then dealing with the kind of complex reactions they're having to the whole process. So, uh, and, you know, they're, they're I'm working on a new novel and the main character, who's actually the granddaughter of a trial lawyers, talks about the way her grandfather would always talk about clients, which is that, you know, they come in two flavors, the ones who can't talk to, about their case enough and the ones who don't want to talk about it at all. And, and it's wrong to assume that those two flavors are innocent and guilty because they don't correspond necessarily. Right. Sometimes, sometimes the, the people who are not fairly accused um, just don't want to talk about it because it's just so upsetting. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who are guilty think the next best thing to being innocent is to convince somebody that they didn't do yeah. it. Um, and, you know, they're trying to make their lawyer the first victim in that, in that crusade. Right. Which makes for good fiction, right? That, that nuance makes, makes that a mystery. So right. um, let's, let's, Let's talk a little bit. What one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is the balance of their life, right? And so, um, and working with writers all the time, one of the things is, how do I hold down a job and write fiction? How do I manage a family and friends, and if I'm really lucky, some free time, as well as taking these steps towards these big goals, which is to write a book. Right? It's not sure. easy to write a novel. Right. And before we start recording, one of the questions I asked is, are, are you still practicing? And you had said that you had just retired from law about a year ago while you're kind of winding up some cases. Um, and so, and so it sounds as if you have been spending your life, your entire fiction writing life as a practicing attorney as well. And so my guess is you've learned some strategies of how to balance those two things out writing fiction, as well as keeping a day job or, you know, working a nine to five, and I'm wondering, like, what have you learned along the way? What, what are some of the big insights? What are the things that have really helped you um, in, in that journey to make sure you're still writing fiction? Well, um, you know, the, the story of how I wrote Presumed Innocence is pretty much instructive. Um, and the, the number one lesson is that even if you don't have time to write a lot, write something. Mm. So... Uh, I got started on Presumed Innocent by writing for 30 minutes every day on the morning commuter train into uh, downtown uh, Chicago. I was working as an assistant U.S. attorney at the time. Um, and, you know, I'd been a writer for a long time uh, before I went to law school. Um, and, you know, I'd been taught by... Um, you know, really great teachers and, and very good writers in their own right that, you know, writing a novel is a job. You got to put your ass in the chair mm -hmm. every day, mm -hmm. just the way you do with every other job. Uh, and 
so even if you don't have time to do that job at length, um, give it give it some time every day, uh, even if it's a short period of time. The other reason to do that um, is not only does it keep the machinery greased, um, you know, the the, the fiction making machinery mm -hmm. in the brain, um, but you'll find that there's a lot of stuff that's been going on behind your eyes. Mm. Um, while you're doing other things that if, if you give yourself a chance will end up emerging on the page. If you, if you just take the time to give yourself an outline. So something is way better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I mean, I love that 30 minutes is better than no time. 15 minutes is better than no time, right? Like, like it any, really any, is. Yeah, and I mean, it's, but it's yeah. so much better that people don't realize it. So yeah, and I don't know any amount of time, right? Like, like right. after, after a year or two of writing 20 or 30 minutes a day, you probably will have close to a draft done. I mean, like you can make right. significant progress if you stretch the timeline out long enough. I think that's one of the right. things that gets lost is that right. on any given day, it, it's kind of like if you took an ax and went out to a tree and chopped one chop at the tree a day. And it's like on any given day, you're not going to notice that much of a difference, right? But if you stretch that right. out to a period of years, the tree is going to get knocked down. Right. I remember I spent time with the late Larry McMurtry. And Larry, I mean, it seemed infuriating because Larry wrote no more than an hour and a half a day. And he was incredibly productive. Um, but, um, you know, you can write a book, The Length of Lonesome Dove. Um, if you're doing it every day. Right. Right. I love that. Okay. So, so the, the, the first piece of advice is great, which is do something every day, which, which I totally agree with. And, um, you know, it's not discounting. Some people are going to have an easier opportunity to do something small a day. Some people, it's going to be really hard. And, you know, sometimes you're going to be on a train. Um, like I remember when I lived in Brooklyn, I would have my phone out and I'd be, you know, pegging words down on the subway you know, next to a trillion people before there was COVID, right? And we didn't do those things anymore. But there, you're going to have to carve out the time, right? It's kind of the reality. And it might be on the train. And it also might be, this is kind of like the, the unfortunate thing. It might be on the backs of being like, I'm not going to, you know, browse Twitter, or Instagram, or, or Facebook for an hour, you know, <laughs> before I go to bed, I'm going to write. Not, not a hard commitment for me to make, but, right. uh, you know, I'm a lot older than you are. Right. So. To me, that's not giving up much. Right. So, so, so maybe Twitter doesn't hurt, but for some people, for some people, that's, that's, that's a, a chunk of time that might be available. So that's, that's one, which I love. What other, what else have you learned? What else did you learn kind of in your um, journey of what makes a big difference of kind of managing the responsibilities of a full-time life, job, family, whatever it might be with writing and producing really good fiction? Um, I, you know, the one The one thing um, that is harder to teach people to do is to be able to throw the switch mm -hmm. and, you know, sink into your own imagination. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the classical image of the, the, the writer in the cork-lined room you know, because, uh, you know, he's so sensitive um, that he has to have, you know, complete silence. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, there. It, that's we all know there's something to it. You can't stand in the middle of you know Madison Avenue, um, you know, with traffic in both right. directions and think you're going to be able to write. So there is a level of distraction that um, that that causes us not to be able to access the creative parts. But, um, you know, the more you practice, the easier it is right. to get into it. And that's another reason that 30 minutes a day is important. One reason I was able to practice law and uh, write simultaneously is because I had, even when I was at home, uh, you know, and I went part-time pretty soon after Presumed Innocent. But even when I was at home writing, you know, I had clients who were good clients and that they would only call me when they really had to. And, but if they called me, I could stop in the middle of a sentence and then go back mm. to that sentence 45 minutes later, if need be, uh, and just pick right back up. So, um, and I don't know if that's a matter of being compartmentalized. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Or actually extremely well integrated. Yeah. So that, um, you know, everything seems part of, you know, the whole in terms of your personality. Yeah, that that's one of those things that, I, you know, it's funny, we just talked about the perils of mindless media consumption. But, but I do think that that's one of the things um, that steals a lot of attention and progress and motivation is this idea of how distracted our lives are now. Um, and I think specifically with the advent of mobile phones, mm-hmm. um, I bet like I, I have a nine and six year old daughter and they cannot believe that. I mean, I'm not that old, but even when I was a kid that we didn't have cell phones, so we didn't have an iPhone. Like they just, they can't wrap their head around this fact. Right. It, it, they become so integrated with our lives. We always have our phone in our hands. We're writing with our phone in our hands. There's text messages and, and social media and emails and all these things popping up. Um, I, I wonder how much, how much distraction one can take before, like you said, you kind of lose that momentum. It's kind of a proverbially standing in the middle of Madison Avenue. If you're holding a phone, that's, you know, chaotic and busy at all times. It's something that's 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 been on my mind a lot. Um, the, the, I definitely. Do, do I, you know I, what I mean? I, I think you're. I think it would be uh, foolish to deny um, that you know life uh, in you know this country and this culture uh, in the Western world has not grown more distracted because mm-hmm. it has. Clearly, I mean, just, right? <laughs> like, you know, there's just so much more coming at yeah. you, yeah, um, from all sources, uh, and it's hard. Although, you know, to me, the the hardest part as a writer, the one distraction that was, um, you know, I, I I was always fraught about was my family, mm-hmm. um, because you know that that thing of like, you know can I turn my imagination off well enough to pay attention to this child? Um, Hmm. And, um, you know, it, that was the one where, as I said, it really made me anxious. um, That, that conflict between um, knowing 
where my attention should be in that moment. And yet um, still feeling the siren call of my own imagination. What I, w- I want to ask a, a, you saying that kind of sparked this, this thought, I'm going to kind of pull the thought apart in real time here, but also ask you a question about it, which is, it seems to me having interviewed a hundred people at this point, which is pretty crazy to say a lot, but it seems to me fiction writing, not, not that you're going to suffer, but, but it certainly comes at a cost. It it demands other parts of your life. It demands time and energy and not that it is in conflict with other parts of life, but it certainly a lot of times feels like it. It kind of feels like there's fiction writing out here. Here I am on my screen. (laughs) And in some perfect world, fiction writing exists in this whole perfect non-disturbed bubble. But then over here is the reality of life, which is way more complex and, and way more dynamic. And there are family and children and and responsibilities and thoughts and all these things. And, and I'm I, firstly, I'm wondering if you have a reaction, if, if that like hits home for you, if the idea that like fiction, there's some reason why fiction is like writing storytelling is at odds with a life. Like it, it never quite feels integrated. Um, well, you, is look, that the case? Am I just making something up here? No, I don't think you're making something <laughs> up. I, I, mean, I always, I, I tease Adrian and, and say, um, when I'm, you know, well, I'm going upstairs now to play with my imaginary friends, <laughs> but um, it is, it is a world that you are trying to create that is separate from um, and is implying somewhat in competition with, um, you know, the reality of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's maybe simpler or in some ways more complex, um, but it's, it is a competing reality mm. in terms of, you know, the existence of the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there we we engage in these uh, philosophical uh, assumptions that you know the world outside is real and the world inside is not. But in terms of what we're actually experiencing, that's not the case, right? Right, right. right. You know, they're you know phenomenologically they're both the same. Uh, and so they really are in competition with one another. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, it, it's like funny that this is an interesting thought. And, and I don't know if I've ever had this where like a thought is kind of like bloomed in real time, like during an, an interview. So it's, it's really fun to kind of experience this with you, but it's almost like it, as much as as writers, we have this desire for this like hermit monk, like existence to be a storyteller without the complexity of our life pushing on us without the responsibilities, without your experience as an attorney, without my experiences, all the things I've done through my fiction then would have no dimension. It would have no depth to it. It's almost like, it's almost like there's a tension that has to exist in there, which is frustrating, but maybe good in a weird, weird, weird way that we feel that tension because then that tension is like compressed like a diamond and put into words, put into story. Right. I mean, I don't know. Um, 
I, I don't know how everybody else experiences what they experience that ends up in their their fiction. Yeah. And I wouldn't pretend that it's impossible for some people to read and think and have that stimulate, you know, the imagined life of fiction. I think I think it does. You know, we've got plenty of examples of homebound, um, you know, uh, invalid writers who still have managed to create uh, amazing work. Um, So, um, but whatever it is, um, the the writing can both can be not only a competition with, but also a refuge from the the so-called outside world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, this is uh, yeah. This is a talk for the philosophers out there. Uh, all 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 you meta listeners who are into like the deep philosophy of the storytelling journey. Like I feel like we're we're touching on something really interesting in here. Yeah, just man. So um, as I, I desperately want to just keep spiraling deeper and deeper into the philosophical abyss with you, but, but I also want to talk about your writing process and specifically, sure. you know, what, what kind of makes you get excited in the writing process and, and what is the, um, you know, what, what, what are the big points for you? So when you think about starting out a new project, um, it sounds like you're working on a new novel right now. Um, Walk me through that process. What does that look like for you? Are you starting with a character? Are you starting with an event? Are you starting with a plot line? Are you starting with a question? How, how does a story take shape in your brain? Um, well, I mean, being honest, it doesn't have any shape to start. Mm. Um, and, I, and I do think starting is the hard part for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding the point of entry. Um, and... So like the novel I'm about halfway through with now was easy because I was writing about a character, which has often happened in my work, who was a subsidiary character in the last book and is now the main character in the next book. Hmm. So I I knew certain things about it. Um, And, um, and then the, the, starting out as well, like, how did she go from there to here? Uh, and what is she doing? And uh, she must like it because she's, she's still doing it. So what is it about? Um, and, but I have to say from almost the beginning, I knew fundamentally what I was going to be writing about with this character, um, which is that she's a person who um, thinks of herself as very strange. And, um, you know, and I, everybody will tell you how strange they are, but uh, in her, in her case, she's writer than most of us. Uh, and that comes, you know, we take the, the pride in the authentic, but it's also very painful, um, mm. you know, to realize you're not like everybody else. So those those were those were the perceptions that got me started. Now, I, mean, I have to say that those are um, 
a lot easier. Um, Cause I mean, that's kind of the core of the book, right? And mm-hmm. So I knew, I knew where I was going to start, but sometimes I, you have no idea and uh, you don't know what you're um, writing about, um, why it's so interesting to you. And um, then it's, you know, it's more of a daily discovery. I am very big on the idea that I'm just going to let myself go. Um, And I do this exploration, not get by kind of just, you know, sitting around with the, like the thinker with my (laughs) hand up. Smoking a pipe. But, you know, I write. Um, Yeah. And I'll write little scraps of anything that seem to me mm-hmm. to fit in this world that I'm trying to imagine. All of my novels have been um, set in part in this imaginary town um, that you know got created by accident with presumed innocent, which is called Kendall County, and it's supposed to be a midwestern city, actually more the size of Milwaukee than Chicago. Um, and, um, so I have that starting point, um, usually, um, so I kind of know where I am. Um, but, you know, like the, the last trial, which is the most recent book, um, I didn't even know at first who the main character was going to be. Um, I had, um, I kind of envisioned the crime. Hmm. Uh, before I envisioned the main character, uh, which is unusual for me. You know, usually I, I know who my protagonist is. So, so as you're writing, especially when you don't have a lot of answers, the options are limitless. <laughs> you could write a million different directions. How do you make a decision? What, what is it you're using to say this is right and this is not right? What do you include and not include? Um, well, you know, one of the, one of my favorite quotes about being a novelist is something that Norman Mailer said in one of his commonplace books, I think in advertisements for myself, where he said, the terrible thing about being a novelist is that you can make a mistake and not know that you've done that for six months. Mm. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think we've all had that experience uh, that because the choices are limitless, you go off in a direction. Um, But hopefully, and this is complicated, Brian, because what what I'm about to say, you know, because, you know, hopefully with time you realize, um, you know, where you, where you should be and where you shouldn't be. And, um, and yet, saying that admits that it's harder to break new ground. If, if you're saying, oh, that's, that's not me, I can't go that way. Um, and oh yeah, this is good, this is, feels like me. Um, you're also sort of admitting that you're confining yourself in a way mm. by what you've done in the past. Uh, so it, it, it is complicated, but it's still, you know, I, I, 
I don't remember whether it was Hemingway or Graham Greene who said, and probably many others who said that every writer basically writes one book. So, um, yeah. and you know, if you're, if, if you're not hip to that, then, um, you know, you can be much more discontented, but, um, you know, if, if you do, if you do say that I've got this central, um, the, the, these central concerns, you know, these questions that still torment me about right and wrong and the yeah. use and misuse of power, uh, which is what's going on in all of my novels. Um, then, you know, if you don't know that you're in trouble. Yeah. Boy, you just, you just touched on a topic that's very central in my life right now. <laughs> that very, very um, timely, this idea. Um, I've been talking about it a lot in our community as well, theme of a book, you know, kind of that, that, that deeper narrative that the book is trying to construct, maybe not give answers, but at least construct the narrative around it. And so, so theme, but also this idea that um, I had another guest say, and I, I, I can't, I can never remember. I need to go listen to all my podcasts to find the person who said it. Um, it, she, she basically said, you know, you're always writing about one question, trying to answer one question, whether or not you know it or not, every single book comes back to the same question. And that just rolled in my mind. Oh, I mean, for months, it's probably been six months since I had that, that discussion. And so that idea that you're you're always dancing around like for you the misuse of power mm-hmm. has been very strong in my mind and and so I, you know kind of my last question before we get into the final five which is like if you're new out there or maybe you hear that and you say that sounds right but I don't know what my question is how does one maybe not find the answer but certainly take the steps take out take the first step towards finding that that answer like figuring out what it is that is your one theme that you're writing about? Well, you're, the, the short answer is you're writing to figure that out. Mm. Um, mm. You know, <laughs> if, if you don't, if you don't feel driven by, by what you're writing, then you're probably not going in the right direction. But mm-hmm. if you do feel driven, then it doesn't matter whether you understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can articulate, if you can articulate the, the question in another way, um, probably as life goes on, you'll you'll be able to do that. But it it's it's the energy that's important. It's not the it's not the formulation of the question because if you could ask the question in a different way or answer it more simply, it wouldn't be necessary to write the book. Mm. So. Um, you know, this is the working out of what is to you a very complicated matter. Even if we say my books are about the use, right. of, use of power, right? Um, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, a lot of half tones in there. Man, I, I am, I am always endlessly fascinated by the complexity and depth of storytelling for the storyteller. I think this is why I do this work, and and why I'm, you know coming up on two years of doing this podcast, I'm still as excited as the first day I started is because the, the depth, you know, when I talk to someone like you, that the depth, 
I realized that story takes us into the human experience and the human psyche is endlessly fascinating, powerful, humbling. You know what I mean? To, to, to know I just step in a long line of these storytellers. I'm not making anything new here. <laughs> Nothing new. It, it, it just, ugh. I wish we could keep talking, Scott, but I have, I have bad news, which is, <laughs> which is we're at, we're at the part of the show where I get to ask you my final five questions. So okay. um, these are always the last questions of the interview and, and why I ask these questions for two reasons. First one, I love the answers. It's my show and I like them. Second reason is because I feel as if the most important part of not the most, one of the most important parts of this journey for storytellers is learning how you as a writer can create and put words on a page. You can put words on a page, a lot opens up. And that's also coincidentally, one of the hardest things for people to do is to sit down and put words on a page. Sure. And these answers, I hope they spark some, some interest and some ideas, some curiosity, but also reinforce this idea that every author I have on the show answers differently. And so you got to find your process in the same way that everyone that I interview has found theirs. So with that said, here's question number one, which is what is just one word, just one word that best describes you. I, you know, you probably get a different answer from me on different days, but <laughs> uh, I'd still say intense. Intense. Interesting. Mm, I like that. Intense. It's the first time I think I've gotten intense. Anyways. Okay. Question number two, if you had to pick a spirit book, right? So this is a book that if you died and you were able to be reincarnated as a book, it's like the book that best embodies who you are what book would it be that's an amazing question but i'll say <laughs> civilization and its discontents by freud wow another new one boy i i was gonna say i also heard some some Jungian archetypical talk coming out of you as well it's like man i hear a, a Jungian in here as well anyways okay question number three um, is there a specific tool? It can be anything at all, software, pencil, chair, desk, coffee, tea, that you absolutely must have to write? Uh, you know, it, it's weird because when I, I told you those stories about writing presumed innocent on the morning commuter train, mm-hmm. and I was doing that longhand, but I, I would say I really need to have my fingers on a keyboard. Yeah. Um, I would, I don't think it would be... Um, you know, except for maybe greater carpal tunnel risks, all that hard for me to go back to a typewriter. But I think I, I really need my fingers on a keyboard. Yeah. 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 I, I get you on that one. I hear you on that one. Okay. Question number four, how do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? Well, um, this is kind of a dodge because... <laughs> Uh, you know, the older you get, the, 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 they are more modulated. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I like, I turned in a draft of this book and then I'm waiting for the publisher to respond. And I'm worried that, you know, I've done some things that I think are risky and that they acknowledge are risky and, um, you know, oh God, how are they going to react to this? And, um, and what am I going to do if they don't like it? Uh, and, um, but 
you know, that's the advantage of experience. I've, I've, I've lived through it before and I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to live, um, you know, it's, it's much when I was much younger before, um, you know, before I had an established career, um, it was very, very hard. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. really hard. And I, and I often confess people say, Oh, you went to law school because you wanted to make a living. And, um, I went to law school because I was fascinated with the law, but I also wanted to get away from my own anxieties as a writer. Mm. I just felt that I was demanding so much of myself every day when I sat down to write, um, you know, that if it was, if it didn't seem great and it never did, um, that, you know, I, I was just anxious and depressed. Mm. And, um, and so I felt somehow intuitively that if I got dragged into this other world, the law, uh, and could come back to writing as, you know, sort of my private time to reflect and digest, um, that I'd be better off. And I was right. That Mm. was exactly right. Mm. That was exactly right. And so for me, the law oddly has been a way to preserve my own creativity. So it's almost like like balance in a way, like a counterbalance. Yeah. Counterbalance is the right. Yeah. Yeah. Counterbalance. I kind of got the idea of like a, I don't want to say pendulum. I don't think pendulum is the right word, but it's a thing of fulcrum. Is that what it is? Yeah. And there's like a teeter totter getting those things balanced. Yeah. Right. It's like the image I saw. But the short answer that I'm giving you is I wouldn't do deal very well when I was younger with the ups Mm -hmm. and downs of the Mm -hmm. writing life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Scott, here it is. Final question. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be? Um, That I think is easier than these other questions, which is write. And don't put up and make any excuses to yourself for writing. Um, Reading, as wonderful and essential as it is, is not writing yeah. <laughs> and sitting in a bar and talking to other writers, very enjoyable. That's not writing. Um, you know, uh, writing is putting your ass in a chair and closing the door mm-hmm. and, and doing it. Uh, and mm-hmm. people who do that, um, you know, whether the tree falls in the forest or not, they're, they're writers. Right. Uh, and the people who don't aren't. Yep. And you're only going to get better by logging a lot of pages, as my friend Tom Ziggle says. Yeah. Uh, You got to write. Yeah. It's a great way to end this. Um, Scott, where can people find you online if they want to learn more? Um, Scott at scottturo.com. So S-C-O-T-T-T-U-R-O-W.com. Okay. And do you hang out on Twitter, Facebook, any of the normal haunts? (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, my various avatars do. Okay. Um, so various people pretending to be you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Scott, I really, I really appreciate this. I, I, I don't know if I've had an interview that was quite as um, kind of deep and philosophical, and and I love that that arena and I love that space, and so I really appreciate your willingness to go there with me and your openness to the discussion. Um, you've left me a lot 
a lot that I'm going to need like a couple whiskeys to unpack, you know, yeah. like there's, there's a lot in this. And so I really appreciate your just wisdom and insight for the past well, hour, th- half th- hour thank you time. for going there with me, Brian, because I guess you just caught me on one of those days. Yeah. So. I mean, any day, any day you're in one of those days, you just give me a call and we'll just cool. just, just, just dive into it. So Scott, thank you yeah. so much for your time. I really appreciate the it. Virtual is, whiskey, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah Zoom whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Scott for his time. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Also, you can check me out on Instagram and Twitter, where I kind of hang out on Twitter, a lot more on Instagram. Lastly, thank you so much for listening, my friends, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.